Support comes from the Ohio State University Comprehensive Cancer Center, James Cancer Hospital, and Solov Research Institute. Just as no two people are exactly the same, neither are their cancers. At the OSU CCC James, there is no routine cancer. Learn more at cancer.osu.edu. Welcome to Wellness Wednesday on All Sides with Ann Fisher. Drug maker Eli Lilly last week announced that those with private insurance would pay a maximum $35 per month for its most commonly prescribed insulin. The move comes as drug makers face intense pressure from the Biden administration, patient advocates, and others to lower the prices. While the new cap is welcome news to those with type 1 diabetes and for some with type 2 diabetes, the change represents just the tip of the iceberg when it comes to the costs for those living with the chronic disease. Nurse Melinda Rowe directs the wellness programs and services at Life Care Alliance and including diabetes management, education, and support services. Welcome to the show. Thank you so much for having me. And, you know, just before we went on, we were talking about how we so often talk about diabetes in terms of um, kind of really shallow ways, like just insulin access or how to prevent getting it if it's type 2 diabetes in the first place or how to treat it without. But it's the costs of having this chronic disease are uh, astronomical. Oh, yeah. The cost for insulin is only the beginning. Um, there is a big movement right now for people to get CGMs, which is continuous glucose monitors. Mm-hmm. That has an expense. Um, it's wonderful in management, but if you can't afford to have it, if you know, you don't have insurance or there's a high deductible or for some reason they you can't get money. it. It costs money. And then that's that's one piece of it. Then there's another component. There's a lot of movement toward people having pumps and the pump um, can be used to administer the insulin. Now, yes, you can always have, you know, an injection that you do. But if you have this pump, which is great, and especially if it can be tied in with your monitor, Mm -hmm. then you can have much better control and that can reduce the different um, medical side effects that can happen or medical conditions that can happen from uncontrolled diabetes. So those other items are the things that make the cost of diabetes and management very high. Um, I have a friend that she's a type one and she has already after two months hit her deductible for the year so that's great but that's a lot of money and if you don't have insurance or it doesn't pay all of it or you have a an income where maybe you um have private insurance and you still have to pay out of pocket yourself that can be a huge barrier to being able to get all the supplies that you need. The Lilly decision to lower prices, it won't happen right away, by the right. way. What are you being told about how soon it will take effect? I think I read that it was in the fall is when it will be. Hmm. But I I would yeah, double, you know, check. double check to see. And it caps the price at 35 bucks a month for people with private insurance. So I'm just thinking you're saying, yeah, but. Right. There's just so much more to it. And it 
there if there's other types of medications as well that somebody can use or another manufacturer besides Lilly. Um, if, if they're getting their insulin from another manufacturer, then that may not apply to them. So what do we know about why insulin costs are stinking much? I don't know. I don't because want it's to been speculate. Around for a long time. I know. I don't want to speculate. I think that would be a question for the manufacturers to circle back around and ask them. Um, what about, does the Lilly decision cover all types of insulin or just? No, okay. it does not. They've just got a few of them. There are some others that it does not cover. Are there lots of different insulins? Yes. Oh, I didn't are. know that. There's uh, different types. There's, um, you know, like a fast acting and then there's your um, ones just to regulate within a 24 hour period. So there's, uh, you know, intermediate, fast, and then your long term that where it lasts or monitors it for the day. Uh, you, you know, sometimes I see um, on like um, utility posts and stuff like that signs saying, will buy your um, test strips. Your test strips. Yes. <laughs> your diabetes test strips. What does that tell you about what's going on out there? Um, the test strips are really expensive. So um, this is what I like to compare test strip uh, prices to. You know how you get a printer and the printer is only $20 and the ink is, you know, 100 Yeah. Um, it's kind of the same thing. You can get free glucometers, just the little meters, but then the strips can cost a dollar a piece. Now, can you imagine if you were having to test four times, just four times a day, you know, and maybe your insurance only pays for two strips or uh, however however they come up with and you go over that you're going to run out um or a dollar a strip my gosh um what we try to do is get people directed if that is the case and they are doing the strips um checking we're suggesting like certain brands that they can go and get over the counter why do they cost so much that's another good question. <laughs> um, I don't know. I just know that there are some cheaper options. And so that's what we try to do is direct people when they call in and they say, you know, that they can't afford to pay these strips. So we're like, uh, switching to another brand might be a better option for you. Are there disproportionately high rates of poverty among people who are type 1 and type 2 diabetic? Um. I, I really don't know. I don't know. I think um, with there are more type twos mm -hmm. as there is more obesity than we've had in mm -hmm. the past. I don't know if you can necessarily always say that that's based on income level. Are there programs out there for low income families? Um, we're actually working with several of the Medicaid um, companies right now in our department and they have actually just got the pre-authorization to get one of those CGMs uh, removed so they're trying the, it's the continuous glucose okay, monitor gotcha, yeah. um, so that they can try to get them access without having as many barriers um, allowing pharmacists and um, doctors and um, other professionals to be able to uh, just get a prescription for them so they can, uh, the, on the lower income, so people that are receiving Medicaid can get those CGMs. Yeah, I mean, Medicaid, and I'm thinking about children with type 1 diabetes, 
and and uh, um, that you know that it's it's a li- going to be a lifelong mm-hmm. thing for them. Right. Uh, and the costs associated with that, just because a child is on Medicaid, doesn't mean their parents necessarily are. Doesn't mean the family isn't otherwise pretty strapped. Right. Right. So I think I I. What I feel more concerned about is really a lot of the working people that have the private insurance. I feel like they're sometimes get the they're the ones that get lost the most because I have been seeing this big push with the Medicaid, and they are providing like phones now that um, if somebody has a CGM and you need to have it hooked up with a phone that will display what your readings are uh-huh. that is a part of the program that they're offering um transportation if you can't make it to a medical appointment so i feel like the medicaid providers are really trying to push to break down those barriers but it is the people that are working and receiving you know they just have private insurance that they're really the ones that are suffering why when there i i can't i guess i get stuck on this test strips okay (laughs) who's selling their test strips why would anyone do that because they can't afford i can imagine they can make money i can make i'll just imagine that they would have the test strips and think well i don't really test that much all the time or i'm tired of sticking my finger i've got these extra ones and i can you know sell it make a little extra money that's what I can imagine. That's what a lot of times it is hard if you think about it to have to constantly stick your finger. Um, it it becomes a burden to sometimes manage that. You just get tired of it. There's a yeah. fatigue to doing all of that. And um, so if you get it sent to you, mailed to you in the in the you know mail from your insurance company, and you get them and you're not using them, yeah, and then you see a sign. And somebody wants to buy it from you. All right. So who wants to buy it? What are they doing with them? I would imagine they're reselling it. <laughs> okay. Like a middleman. Gotcha. I don't know. I okay. don't know this industry. Yeah. Uh, but I see the signs. <laughs> At Life Care Alliance, well, let, let's see. You've likened how insulin works in the body to how a key works in a lock. So I guess first we have to understand what is diabetes and how does insulin address it? So um, with diabetes, if we focus on type one, the pancreas has stopped producing insulin. You need insulin. Um, It acts like a key to open a door. So when you open that door, so the door would be on the cell, you open it up so that the glucose, the sugar from the carbohydrates that you eat can go into the cells so you can use it for energy. It is, it's like air. You, you have to have it. And if you don't, um, you, you know, your blood sugar will rise. And then that's where, you know, you end up in the hospital. Um, elevated blood sugars um, immediately. I, I mean, if, if it's not treated, it can lead to death. Um, or if you're chronically running high and maybe using insulin but you're not using the amount you should let's say you can't afford it you're 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 trying to like well maybe i won't eat carbs and i'm gonna cut back how much insulin that i use because i can't afford more right now any of that so you're running higher blood sugar levels um 
the damage. So go back to money and also to your physical being. The damage and expense behind that damage is, oh, it, it it's life-changing. I mean, from loss of vision, you can lose um, peripheral sensation in your hands, feet, where you can have injuries then. You don't the realize it. System is yes. Affected, yeah. And then this is where you might see somebody that's had amputations because they had an injury. They can't feel it. They don't know. Um, you know, it turns to so, gangrene yeah, or something yeah. and then they have to have an amputation. Um, there's also a lot of damage that goes on in the autonomic nervous system. Which so is- that is the uh, your nervous system that you're not in control of. So like digestion, your breathing, your heart. Okay. And, and so you can have a lot of damage to your organs for, just as, you know, it's easy to say like, oh, I can't see. So I can tell that it damaged my eyes. But, um, you know, you may wonder, you know, why am I having like stomach or digest like intestinal issues or there can be other things going on with kidneys um so yeah there's a lot that goes on and how does treatment differ by age by age yeah much um in the older population a lot of times they don't want their blood sugar to go quite or like they have a little bit of a higher range that is acceptable just so that there's not a risk of going lower and then possibly like falling you would like if you're an older person you wouldn't want to fall you've got a lot of risks besides that you know behind that um when we talk about elevated blood sugar i'm going to flip the coin and just say some of us say oh yeah my blood sugar just dropped right you feel weak you can't you don't have any energy with elevated blood sugar it's the same thing not always okay not always. I had one man that we um, had done a screening for. This is years ago, but um, he had actually had was cancer treatments, so it didn't even have anything to do with that. But it had caused him to go into diabetes. He didn't even realize it. How it had come out was, he said um, to me, "He goes, do you think this could be why I'm having problems seeing?" So other than that, he did not really recognize anything okay so um sometimes yes you can tell and then other times you can't as if it's a slow if you're always used to being higher it it becomes your norm it's the same thing with um then you might dip down and think that you're low when it still might be clinically in a normal range but it feels low to you gotcha um you know, we hear about diabetic comas. Mm-hmm. What's that? When the blood sugar goes so high that um, you can go into a coma. The same thing can happen if it goes really low. You're just completely running out of energy. Let's say you had too much insulin and you didn't eat anything and okay. all the blood sugar went into the cells and everything just goes so low. Does insulin okay. save you in every case if you get it soon enough or... Is there a point of no return? Um, I think you can get to the point where there you're teetering on a point of no return if uh-huh. it's been too long. Okay, and it won't. It can't bring I, it back. I, I wouldn't say that there would be. I think everybody's got a, little a chance. I mean, yeah. it's probably the same thing for anything, but it's it's just it's like air. Um, I had a son that had asthma, same sort of thing. 
he had to have the medication. It is just not optional. You know, if some if somebody is in a dire situation, you just cannot say like, well, they can wait a day or two. Um, what are your patients at Life Care Alliance saying about this cut in the rates of the cost for insulin by Eli Lilly? Um, I'm so what when we get phone calls from people, I think it's those people that are the in between, once again, the in between that are having to make up so much in a deductible mm-hmm. beforehand. I'm just hoping that this can make a difference. But like I said, this is only the beginning because there's all the other side components that make this so expensive that I overall it's there's still a lot of expense that they they have to incur. Uh, Melinda Rowe, thanks so much for your time today. I really appreciate sure. it. Sure. Melinda Rowe is a nurse. She directs the wellness programs and services at Life Care Alliance, including diabetes management, education, and support services. We have more Wellness Wednesday coming up, so stay with us. This is All Sides with Ann Fisher on 89.7 NPR News. This is Chip Brantley, co-host of the NPR podcast, White Lies. Before we found the man in Vancouver, before we sued the State Department, before we snuck into the graveyard of a federal penitentiary, all we had were the photographs. Photographs of a group of Cuban men standing on the roof of a prison in rural Alabama. That's this season on the NPR podcast, White Lies. Welcome back to Wellness Wednesday on All Sides. I'm your host, Ann Fisher. Adderall is a popular drug used to treat attention deficit hyperactivity disorder. Now it's in short supply and the dearth is frustrating the millions of adults and children who rely on such drug therapy to manage their daily lives. Georgia parent Christina Yaris told NPR last week that she searched countless pharmacies without luck and that's left her eight-year-old son struggling at school. The minute we ran out of it, he was back to, you know, getting in trouble every day, getting up out of his seat. The teachers immediately noticed that he was off of it. Dr. Matt Max Wisnitzer is Interim Chief of Pediatric Neurology at Rainbow Babies and Children's Hospital in Cleveland. He's also co-chair of the Professional Advisory Board of CHADD, CHAD, the National Advocacy Group on ADHD. Welcome to the show, Dr. Wisnitzer. Thank you. You are uh, definitely hearing from parents about the supply shortages, right? Uh, yes. A day doesn't go by that someone doesn't call and said, I can't get what you prescribed. What can we do? What is the big hairy deal about this? Why the shortage? Well, we have a perfect storm here. And it's a perfect storm dealing with supply, demand, and production. What For, for people who do not know, the, uh, the medications that we are talking about here, which are the stimulant medications, methylphenidate and amphetamine products, um, are regulated by the government and are considered to be what called Schedule II drugs. And 
the Drug Enforcement Administration only allows a certain amount of the raw material to manufacture these products to be available to the manufacturers every year. In other words, you basically have to sit down and say, how much am I going to need for, for production this year? It'd be the same idea as if I told you that if you're, if you're a baker, you're only allowed 100 sacks of flour for the entire year. It doesn't matter how much demand occurs. And you got to try to be, figure out, is the demand going to be adequate? Am I going to figure out what I need to do? Well, here, they, for this last year, they have set a certain amount of, med, of raw material to be available to the manufacturers, but we hit some stone walls. One, which was a simple stone wall, was that one of the manufacturers, one of the main manufacturers of Adderall, um, had manufacturing problems, so they couldn't make the product. That means it was less available on the market, but they could potentially catch up. But then we had number two, which was there was an increased demand. And the increased demand was likely driven by two things. One is uh, uh, increased recognition of adult ADHD and increased availability of evaluation services, especially through some telehealth companies um, to identify individuals with ADHD and therefore giving them more prescriptions. And number two, during the pandemic, parents said, oh, my God, my kid is hyper. My kid can't stay focused. The teacher did know forward. what they were talking about. <laughs> the teacher, right? Oh, you know, my, my kid's playing games on the computer. My kid's not, not doing the homework the way it's supposed to be. And then realized, yes, my child does have a problem. And we basically had... Uh, we we had these people so it was the perfect storm of the limited supply which was calculated at the beginning of the year the increased demand due to the factors that we identified and some manufacturing glitches which again limited the supply i'm trying to understand the regulations on this score um and why i mean this you know your your um pounds of flour thing makes perfect sense um why do they do that to this well, why they do this to this is because these are potentially abusable drugs. So yeah. you want to make sure that when you supply the raw material, the raw material, uh, that you know how much the people are getting, what they're doing with it, and how they account for it. Uh, and that's why it's 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 strongly regulated by the by the government uh, in, in terms of that. Now, while I say it has the while I say it has the potential for abuse, we have to remember. Excuse me one second. Yep. There we go. <laughs> All right. Even though we say it has the potential for abuse, we have to remember that the vast majority of people who use these medications do not abuse them. Uh, and, and we have to take that into account, especially when it comes to the pediatric population. It's very rare in the pediatric population that we actually have that happening. But still, the government feels you have to regulate and you have to remember while the medicine is used for ADHD, it's also used for other purposes. It's used for treating certain kinds of sleep disorders that are associated with excessive daytime sleepiness or tiredness. Um, That's the stimulant uh, property of it. it. It's the stimulant property of it that, that basically will keep you awake uh, in, in that regard. Um, so, so, uh, so that uh, people have to recognize that the government is trying to protect the public and also regulate the way it's supposed to regulate, but still make sure that the products are available. And this is the way it's been doing for years. This is not the first year this happened to us. This has happened in the past. Uh, I remember clearly in the early 2010s uh, when that happened with Concerta, which is a oh. methylphenidate product. 
Well, um, you're listening to All Sides with Ann Fisher. It's Wellness Wednesday, and I'm talking with Dr. Max Wisnitzer. He's Interim Chief of Pediatric Neurology at Rainbow Babies and Children's Hospital in Cleveland. We're talking about the Adderall shortage. Uh, He's also co-chair of the Professional Advisory Board uh, that oversees the National Advocacy Group on ADHD. Uh, There is a shortage of Adderall, very popular medication for ADHD. What makes... um, how big is the shortage? How, how, is there some way to visualize that? And um, why is uh, Adderall so popular? Well, a- Adderall is one of the two main stimulants. I mean, there's, if you're looking for treatment of ADHD, the best medicines that will treat ADHD are the stimulant medicines. And you've got your choice of methylphenidate and, uh, and amphetamine products. Methylphenidate products are Ritalin, Concerta, um, um, Focalin, and and the amphetamine products are drugs like Adderall, um, which is the one that the Vyvanse um, and 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 other ones of that type. Interestingly, it's really more the ad the, the Adderall manufacturers because there seems to be an increased demand for Adderall because it's a good medicine. It's very good for helping improve attention span, mm-hmm. reduce impulsivity, and uh, and uh, and reduce distractibility. Uh, so, so it does the job and it comes in two formulations. It comes as an immediate release tablet and it comes as an extended release tablet, a, a capsule. Um, nowadays we have problems getting our hands on both. And not only that, if I may, there, there's actually a cascade effect because you can't get your hands on Adderall Then people are being methylphenidate products. And now we're seeing a relative shortage of methylphenidate products or availability of it because of the increased demand to use it to make up for the fact that people can't get it, but there's ways of getting around this. And I assume we're going to get to that later yeah, on. Well, to make I, yeah, sure, I to definitely make sure we can get the supply. Well, there's two things. I mean, there's just trying to get the drug itself or get some substitute that's going to work for you. you and and well, then there's the other issue of what if you can't, there's withdrawal issues, aren't there? No, there are not, not with withdrawal issues. No, no, okay. no. Remember we're using pharmacologic dosing for ADHD. The medicine basically is out of your body by the end of the day. Okay. So, so it's not like it, this is not like when people who abuse these drugs. That's those doses are much, much, much higher than the doses we use for treating ADHD. Okay. So how do you get around this stuff? What do you, what are you talking about when you say that? Is it well, legal? It, oh, it's all it's all legal. Okay. All you really have to ask yourself is the question is if I'm on an extended release formulation, like so, so let's give you an example. I'm on generic Adderall 20 milligram extended release daily then instead of that, I can go get the tablets. I can put you on a 10 milligram tablet in the morning, a 10 milligram tablet at lunch, and that mimics the effect of the extended release. Or I can take a 20 milligram tablet, cut it in half, half in the morning, half at lunch time. Um, if that works, fine. If it doesn't work, then I basically can go to other products that basically are amphetamine products. There are a variety of brand name amphetamine products on the market. Uh, that can be used as substitutes uh, uh, for these medications. And if the insurance company will allow it, believe it or not, the brand name Adderall extended release is available on the market. That's you know, the, because remember, generic is cheaper than brand name. Okay. Uh, All right. So you can, so you can get your, so you, you can get your hands on brand name, uh, but many times the insurance company says, no, you've got to do these other things and try other ones. But I, I do not have a patient who's, I've not been able to, get them a substitute that is of equal potency and effect uh, for it. You just have to be, yeah, I, I tell folks you have to think outside the box. Uh, just don't say, woe is me. Um, uh, I, I, I can't, I can't get my hands on it. You, There are ways of doing it. Um, 
we played audio at the beginning of the show from a mother describing how her son's behavior changed in school. That's where oh. that's where they're noticing it the, the the soonest. He was out of his seat more, had trouble focusing. And I guess is that pretty typical? Well, yes, because remember what these medicines do is they reduce they improve your attention span, they reduce your impulsivity and they reduce your hyperactivity. And I can tell you that teachers I basically will call parents on days when the kids' behaviors change like this and say, has anything happened at home? And usually what happens then is the parent forgot to give the medicine, uh, which happens. I mean, we're all human. Sure, sure, yeah. We know that that happens. So, so, so what happened, like I said, the medicine wears off by the end of the day. So actually, if you would see these children at night at home, you'd see that they're a bit energetic. I don't, uh, you know, <laughs> can you explain how a stimulant-based medicine calms? Well, well it, it, see, but we're looking at it the wrong way. Okay. What this medicine does is it increases the amounts of dopamine available to the brain. And ADHD is considered to be a relative dopamine deficiency in the brain. So when we give him the medication, it reduces your impulsivity. It improves your focus. And if think about this. If you drink coffee, which has caffeine in it, one of the reasons people do that is so they can focus better. Mm -hmm. So if you're able to focus better, you'll sit still longer and, and, and you'll be less impulsive. So the medication works perfectly the way it's supposed to work uh, by, by, by activating those centers in the brain that are being, that are underactive and allowing them to function more normally. Is, does Adderall work the same way in children as adults? Yes. Okay. Yes. There are some medications uh, that don't, right? No, you're, you're right. There are some medicines. There may be differences, uh, but not only. But what you have to do is the dosing may be a bit different. The dosing for children is more per weight. For adults, it's much more nuanced, uh, and weight is only one of the factors that goes into that. All right. If somebody can't get medication right now, they can't afford the brand brand name. They just can't get it for one reason or another. Um, how do they help their kid, particularly an adult? I think. Well, I would tell you they. First of all, they should be able to get, get it. something. Let me okay. give you. Let me give you an example, which I've done with many of my patients. If you, because we're talking about Adderall, if I can't get my hands on Adderall, either tablets or the or the capsules, you can get your hands on Vyvanse, which is an amphetamine product. Also, you just have to figure out the dose equivalent and give that. So, and you, there may be a slightly higher copay, but almost all insurance plans have that within their insurance formulary to use it it's not outside the formula okay. there are other brand names that are also available that use that usually will fall within the formulary that people could look. so i would argue that i would state that it's that it's that you should be able to get something that will work and and, and for instance i had one of my moms where um she was looking for a, a, a medication uh, she was looking for the tablets but i pointed out that there's different strength tablets there's strength tablets that may not be used as much to you can use, for instance, the Adderall comes as a 5, 7.5, 10, 12.5, 15, 20, 25, and 30 milligram tablets, if oh. I'm not mistaken. So there's lots of different, there's lots of different strengths that you can play with and, and, and cut them in pieces because they're, they're double scored. So I would tell you that you should be able to find some substitute somewhere. Are the shortages more apparent in different parts of the country, in rural areas versus urban areas? I mean, is there anything to talk about there? I think it's more It's more of there, there, there have been more reports in certain areas than others. I don't think it's rural versus 
urban. It's okay. also depends who the middleman is that supplies the products. Uh, I tell folks. Pharmacy tell benefit my, managers. Yes, exactly. I tell my parents that if you go to pharmacy A and they have, they, 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 they their deliveries come from delivery company A, then go to pharmacy B that gets it from a different delivery company. You may find it may work better. If you have, if you have a, um, if you have a mail away plan, see if the mail away plan has it. Uh, many, some, the, some of the hospital pharmacies many times will have things in stock because people don't think to use the hospital pharmacies, mm -hmm. even though they've got great outpatient services. That's uh, right. Um, and uh, what is the role of pharmacies in making sure that they stock enough for the, they know these, they're good. The demand has gone up. Is there going to be any, are they going to rejigger anything at the regulation mm. regulatory level? No, I think what's probably going to happen is that recognizing this was happening, they'll probably make sure there's more raw material available for this coming year. Okay. So that means that they'll, they'll be able to manu they'll, they'll manufacture. Also remember that the, the issue with the, the with the telehealth companies prescribing stimulant medicines, there was a bit of a debacle there. There were some issues about, about, uh, about, the reliability of the diagnoses and right. how things were being given. So those companies, many of them have stepped back from providing it. And there's new federal rules coming down that are basically stating that patients have to be seen in person mm -hmm. uh, for these kinds of medications before you can actually give a prescription and provide virtual visits. So that's gonna it's gonna limit this kind of a demand that's gonna be there. So I think with all these other forces, one is better uh, increased supply. Number two is we're now at the beginning of the year. And we know by March, April that uh, that th this relative deficit should basically resolve itself according to the FDA, uh, and 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 then um, uh, by the fact that that the rules have changed about how telemedicine can now provide medication, we hopefully we, this should not ha happen this coming year. But how do you feel about? I mean, we actually we did a show about the telemedicine issue when it comes to ADHD drugs. Um, uh, like a month or so ago, and we should probably dig that up and post a link to that on our website at wosu.org slash all sides uh, to give people kind of the other uh, part of the equation on that score. But how do you feel about it making it more more difficult for a lot of people to get access to, help, you know, to um, psychologists, um, neurologists? But it's not the psychologist. It's the prescribing. I mean, you're okay. still able to access the psychologist. Okay. And if you're looking for non-scheduled drugs, non-stimulants, I mean, if you have mental health issues like depression and anxiety, that can still be done virtually. It's the ADHD population they want to be careful about. Now, I'll tell you, like you pointed out, there's pros and cons to doing it to, to telemedicine. For instance, if I'm seeing a child uh, by, by telemedicine versus in my office, uh, usually they'll be showing their true colors mm -hmm. at home, and I see them bouncing around in the background. I bet, yeah. <laughs> which they would never do. They're in my so office. stressed out when they come to your office. They're like, exactly. They're very, the, very, the, yeah. Two kids yesterday were saying, "Am I going to get a shot? Am I going to get a shot?" And said, "Perfectly still yeah. for for half an hour." So the idea being that uh, you can you can sometimes get a, a good view, but but I don't know, think the issue is as much with the children as it is with the adults. I mean, there, there's, and you'd probably have to have a separate show to really discuss the issue. Of, of adult telehealth and even adult diagnosis of ADHD and the issues that surround that. Um, that's where I think some of the, some of the, um, the we'll call it the rate limiting steps uh, exist. Um, I, you know, after I see patients in person, many times I will see them virtually from then on, especially if they live far away. 
uh, and uh, and we monitor what's going on. We check to make sure that they're getting the prescriptions when they should, because in Ohio, there's there's a database that provides all that information to us that they're filling their scripts appropriately and uh, and in a timely manner. So that so the the, the regulations are there uh, to do this. We just have to basically follow the rules, and when we do, we can provide good care. I've heard a lot of adults are alerted to the potential for being ADHD themselves when they're filling out the forms and the questionnaires for their children. Oh, there's no doubt about. Well, first of all, ADHD is a highly heritable condition. Eighty percent of children with ADHD, you will find that it runs in the family. Mm-hmm. Usually, a parent, sibling or very close relative. And if you ask the questions the right way, uh, you'll find out that someone was symptomatic when they were a parent when younger uh, and maybe was even on treatment or is still symptomatic. And I I can't tell you the number of times uh, that a parent has said to me that the spouse, it's always the spouse, uh, that the spouse can't sit still, can't stay focused, is not well organized and the kids keep shaking their head. Yes, yes, yes. Uh, So you're correct. That's one of the ways that it happens. I mean, the other way it happens for adults is that they were treated as children and either are transitioning care to an adult provider or they stopped their treatment and then found out a few years later they still need it again. And that that happens all the time. It's the third group where people have no real history of it when they were younger. Um, there's no real footprints that are there. And all of a sudden they realize at age 30 that they might have ADHD. That This is a group that we have to make sure we, we check out carefully. Uh, uh, to make sure that the diagnosis is an accurate one. Dr. Max Wisnitzer, thanks so much for your time today. I really appreciate it. It is my pleasure. Anytime. Dr. Max Wisnitzer is Interim Chief of Pediatric Neurology at Rainbow Babies and Children's Hospital in Cleveland. He's co-chair of the Professional Advisory Board, CHAD, the National Advocacy Group on ADHD. And we've been talking about uh, the shortage of ADHD medicines, uh, particularly Adderall. It's kind of created this cascading effect, as he described, uh, where there's a shortage of others to replace it. Uh, We'll see what happens going forward. Um, But for now, we have a little bit more Wellness Wednesday coming up. I hope you'll stay with us. This is All Sides with Ann Fisher on 89.7 NPR News. This is Chip Brantley, co-host of the NPR podcast, White Lies. Before we found the man in Vancouver, before we sued the State Department, before we snuck into the graveyard of a federal penitentiary, all we had were the photographs. Photographs of a group of Cuban men standing on the roof of a prison in rural Alabama. That's this season on the NPR podcast, White Lies. Welcome back to Wellness Wednesday on All Sides. I'm your host, Ann Fisher. This weekend, we spring forward, that is, set our clocks ahead an hour in accordance with daylight savings rules and regulations. Americans are tired of switching back and forth, but Congress so far has lacked the will to enact change. We're going to talk about the health costs of daylight savings. Dr. Beth Ann Mallow is a professor of neurology and director of the sleep division at Vanderbilt University, which treats sleep disorders. She wrote a wh- about 
why daylight savings time is an issue uh, for the conversation. We'll post a link to that at WOSU.org slash all sides. Dr. Beth Ann Mallow, welcome. Thank you. I'm glad to be here. You write that springing forward is a step back for our health. How so? When we spring forward, which we're going to be doing this weekend, we actually have darker mornings and we need that light in the morning to wake us up, get us going, synchronize our brains with our environment. And that all promotes health. It promotes better sleep. For a lot of people, I, I, for just from talking people anecdotally, it's sort of like the suddenness of it, the shock. You know, we've just got to, you know, the mornings are just starting to brighten up, you know, and you're kind of jumping out of bed to walk the dog. I, obviously, I'm talking about myself now. And then it's just boom, pitch black again. Absolutely. I think there's two issues. One is going back and forth and it's abrupt. It's abrupt when you're trying to walk your dog. It's abrupt when you get in your car and you're trying to drive and suddenly it's dark when it was light. That can be pretty dangerous too. And then there's this other issue of we're then going to be off for almost eight months for the year until we go back in, in November to standard time where we're one hour off uh, for eight months almost. And the clock in my car is off for about that amount of time as well. Which is worse, spring or fall? We think that going ahead is worse in terms of, well, we, we clearly lose the hour of sleep. And we've seen an uptick in, for example, heart attacks uh, compared to the fall. I think that the other issue is that we're now gonna have almost eight months of getting less light in the morning. Now, granted, we're getting more light in the afternoon, which some people like, I get that, but um, health has shown that it's that morning light that we really need to wake us up, get us going, be more alert. We use light boxes for people who are depressed and we tell them to use it in the morning when they have seasonal affective disorder because light in the morning is a very potent, stimulus for our mood. It makes us brighter, happier, all of that. Um, what was the heart attack connection? Yeah, there's an uptick in heart attacks when we switch. Again, it's probably that jolt to the system that you mentioned, that it just takes a toll on our adrenaline and our other hormones, and it makes us more susceptible. It's a small uptick, but it, it has been proven in multiple studies. Uh, to be there. So there are health aspects as well as kind of the inconvenience of going back and forth. Um, what What is the deal with light and how it activates and benefits our mood or the lack thereof uh, hurts us? Yeah. So what light does is it's it kind of think of it as synchronizing our clocks in our brains and bodies to what's going on in the outside environment. And it's a very strong stimulus for that. So believe it or not, the light we get in the morning not only wakes us up, but it makes it easier to go to sleep at night because it just um, synchronizes ourselves to our environment. And this is as old as time because before we had wristwatches and uh, cl alarm clocks, light was the deal. Absolutely. And the reason it's called standard time is it approximates, not for everybody, but for most people, like as close as you can get to the light being overhead at noon. So that's the natural light. That what's that works best, as you say, over time for our bodies and our mood. 
And by moving everything an hour later with daylight saving time, it disrupts that process. If you can, refresh my memory on why we have daylight savings time in the first place. Why did we ever start doing it? We started doing daylight saving time during the wars because we thought it would save energy. And it might have back then, but it really hasn't since, especially now with uh, efficient electricity and all. In fact, some people question whether it might cost more energy to cool our homes in the hot summer months when we're on daylight saving time, but that needs to be studied. Um, you testified at a congressional hearing advocating for permanent standard time nationwide. And obviously we know that hasn't passed. <laughs> they got, got through the Senate, uh, not the House. I'm not, sure, I'm not even sure they took it up. Um, what do you hear from lawmakers about why they're unwilling? Or maybe I, did you testify in the Senate where it did pass? No, I testified in the House okay. where it didn't pass. I like to think it was me, but I know there are other factors as well. Uh, no, we, we had a hearing in the House, and they were very deliberate. They brought in experts from all sides, and just like your show, all sides. <laughs> and I I think that I, I focused on the health aspects, and I think they realized it was complicated. I think they also wanted to look at energy costs and uh, transportation and all these other various issues. Um, so they took a very thoughtful approach to it. Um, my understanding is the Senate kind of jumped on it with a unanimous kind of a vote. And I, I hope they'll be a little bit more thoughtful this time around. I'm sure they will be. Um, but I think what's really important for your, your listeners to know is it does require an act of Congress to go to permanent daylight saving time while at the state level, you can actually opt out and go to permanent standard time without an act of Congress. So Arizona and Hawaii have done that. And I'm very proud to be in Tennessee where we have legislation that's being considered right now in our state house to opt out of um, permanence, um, you know, basically opt out of daylight saving time and go to permanent standard time year round. Um, so what are the concerns? I mean, I think you make the, the good point that, uh, the House, the U.S. House is trying to be very deliberate and, and make sure they've got all their T's crossed and their dies, uh, dot, dot their I's. But um, what else? Because the, 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 the hue and cry is pretty loud out there to change this. What, what are their concerns? What do they care? Well, I mean, I think it's a trade-off like anything else. I speak as a health expert and I'm supported, what I'm saying, by at least 20 other organizations, if not more, that all see the benefit to permanent standard time from a health aspect, including, for example, the American Academy of Sleep Medicine, the American Medical Association. I think the trade-off, and it's a real one, is that people do appreciate coming out of work and having that light in the afternoon, and they hear that from their constituents. And I get that, too. I mean, I, I certainly see that. Um, as a trade-off. On the other hand, I think if we can get the word out about, number one, we got to do something because this is really, really annoying and it has health aspects to go back and forth and have that jolt. Mm -hmm. And two, when you look at it, the morning light is actually the healthier choice, the permanent standard time, the year-round standard time. I think it's a matter of getting that out to people so that they understand. And the other thing I'll say personally is I love to run in the afternoon, but this summer and even into the fall, it was just so hot. Mm -hmm. And 
switching to the morning, which would we would do during permanent standard, you know, you get your light in the morning, you get your exercise in. They've been doing this in Arizona for a really long time, since the 68, 70s. Oh, really? Okay. And yeah, because they opted out in the late 60s, and they said, we're going to go on permanent um, standard time. And they they play golf in the morning. Mm -hmm. They they do all their activities in the morning, because in the afternoon, it could be above 100 degrees. And that's worked really well for them as a state. So I think we can learn a lot from Arizona and I guess from Hawaii too, although Hawaii is kind of a whole different ball of wax. Well, I understand that geography can make a difference. So I guess that's the Arizona is the heat effect. And yeah, what's, so there's what's two that about? Geography. Yeah. There's the heat effect with Arizona. I think that is huge. And then the other thing, I'm glad you mentioned geography because um, people who live on the western edge of time zones, particularly in the north, and to, I, I was looking at the Ohio map last night in preparation for today, and you guys are somewhat affected, not as badly as Indiana or Michigan, mm -hmm. but when you're on the western edge of a time zone, so for you guys, the eastern time zone, it's even darker in the morning during daylight saving time and then it's even darker you know it's even then it gets even lighter in right the sun. it's so in pitch the winter, black dark mornings right yeah. um so like in chattanooga tennessee i live in tennessee if we were to go to year-round uh, permanent daylight saving time it would actually be almost nine o'clock in the morning before we had sunrise and that's just way too late especially for kids who are trying to get to school drive to school you know wait for the bus uh, it's it's really uh, very disruptive. So so geography wise, some parts of the country are even more disadvantaged by the um, by the idea of going to permanent daylight saving time, particularly in the winter. Is there anything instructive from looking at what other countries do? Well, um, Mexico recently went to permanent standard time, and they cited not just the health and well-being of their country, but energy savings as well. So mm -hmm. I think there's something to be learned there about the energy. As I, I'd really like to see a, the, the House and the Senate do an exhaustive energy uh, deep dive. And then um, the EU and various other countries, kind of, they were going to make a decision for what to do, but then they put it off during COVID. But now I think it's reemerging again, is this question of, Let's stop going back and forth because it's very disruptive. Um, different countries will go to daylight saving time at different times, and there's no rhyme or reason to it. So it can be quite disruptive for um, for the global economy and communications. Dr. Beth Ann Mallow, thanks so much for your time. I really appreciate it. Thank you. It was a pleasure. I appreciate your having me. Dr. Beth Ann Mallow is a professor of neurology and director of the sleep division at Vanderbilt University, uh, which treats sleep disorders. And she uh, wrote an article for the conversation um, about why daylight savings time is a a mental health and a physical health issue uh, for us. If you want to check that out, we'll have a link at WOSU.org slash All Sides. Thanks for listening today. This has been Wellness Wednesday on All Sides with Ann Fisher on 89.7 NPR News.